Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Are we doing this? Let's do this. Okay, what the fuckers? What the fucking ears? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? Whatever the fuck you want to call yourself. I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF. Thank you for listening. I've spent, I, you know, I didn't spend that long watching the Chilean miners being extracted from the hole, but I thought that if you were a little out of touch, it would have looked like some sort of new game show that I'm not sure what the rules are, but I guess everybody wins. They, they come out of the hole, they come out of the machine, they are embraced by their loved ones, and everyone's a winner. This is one of those rare things. I think what provoked me to think about this uh, was really yesterday I heard on NPR that they had decided an order as to who would go out first, which miner would go out first out of the 30-some-odd miners that were in there. And an order was decided. I'm not sure how it went, but in the story that I heard, I thought it was interesting that they were actually fighting who would be the... They were fighting about who would be the last one out of the hole. Who would be the last one out? Which means someone was gunning for the record. Who would hold the record of being, you know trapped in a mine for the longest amount of time and living in the history of the world. Someone was going for the record. So it was a game show to a certain degree in that someone wanted to win that title. I assume that the guys who got out first are the guys who were like, uh, let's just get the fuck out of the hole, didn't really give a shit about that record and probably told the guy, it's like, all right, dude, whatever you want to do, I just want to get the fuck out of the hole. And this is one of the most exploited disasters i've seen in a while because it's a rare disaster where everybody lives where everybody gets out and they know everyone's going to get out once that that hole was drilled they got equipment in place and and it it is so exploited to the fact that apparently they sent down a book a couple weeks ago in in training people how to to speak publicly they wanted these guys to be good for the press The, the world's press is there oakley uh donated some expensive sunglasses so they get a plug i heard for about 10 minutes yesterday you know where the machine that they made the elevator that was created to pull the guys out of the hole that was a california company i mean it's just a rare opportunity where a disaster can be branded so efficiently because they know that everyone's going to live you don't see this kind of stuff where they're you know sending boats out and pulling bodies out of water you know after plane crashes well that boat you see that claw that was manufactured right here in san rafael california pulling that uh, half a torso out of the ocean uh, it's a wonderful machine we're going to talk to the creators that that doesn't happen and it also is weird to me that they have this self-centered sort of competitiveness that's just based on publicity that just the fact that somebody was fighting for the opportunity to be last out of that hole is some sort of weird corruption of the competitive spirit in my mind i mean i guess it's a good record to hold but that for that to transcend the idea that you just want to get out of the fucking hole to me is is baffling needless to say uh i would rather be first out of the hole i i would rather be first just about anywhere uh i have that problem i i need to be places early i i go to the airport three or four hours early i go uh if there's a if there's a restaurant that has a buffet i'll be there early i i don't know what it is i i I need to be first it's it's stupid it's embarrassing i was at my um my brother's uh kids bar mitzvah last weekend 
and you know they opened it was the the party was at a zoo it was a zoo theme party it was at night but they basically just had cold cuts and you know shitty food kids food because it's a kids party and after some little event they had at the party they announced the food was out and i literally ran for the food and i was the only adult on a line of about 20 25 kids uh first in line to get food not a proud moment but let me tell you man that that event was something else I could not believe the possibilities for emotional and family chaos. I could not, but I couldn't even fathom it. Now, this was the interesting revelation about the uh, about the the two days that I was there, the three days I was there. A couple of things happened. Was that I went over on the on the Saturday? We had the day off after the service. I went over to see my dad, and I said, "Look, Pop, why don't we go over and uh, hang out with the grandkids? You want to go see the grandkids?" He, he literally, my father literally said, ah, what, "What do I need it for?" Wait, 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 what, what, what do I need that for? I'm like, well, I, I don't know. They're your grandkids, so you may want to spend some time with them. Yeah, he goes, my father literally goes, you know, a lot of people, they get something out of that. does nothing for me. I get nothing out of it. I'm like, okay, that's good to know. I guess I could have assumed that, Dad. Well, so what do you want to do? He says, well, look, I called about three or four places in town. I'm looking for mustard slacks. You're know, very hard to find mustard slacks. I need to, you know, mustard colored pants. I'm like, pants, like dress pants? Yeah, but mustard colored. I had a pair, I love them. Now, you have to understand, my father is a borderline hoarder, and I don't know what defines hoarding. Is it still hoarding if you build literally a wing onto your house to put the shit that you are hoarding in in an organized fashion? Is it still hoarding if it is relatively organized? My father lives in a small house. He built literally a two-level cedar closet in the middle of a house that took up half a bedroom so he could put all his suits in there that he doesn't wear, but he claims to wear all of them. So he needs mustard pants. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how the fuck could you not have mustard pants? You have 900, whatever. But I said, okay, mustard pants. Is this, if this is how we're going to repress our emotions, if this is what the focus is, literally, we're there for a family event. I go see my father. He's like, we're going to get mustard pants. With everything going on, with all the other stress, he wants to get mustard pants. So we go to a mall and we go looking for mustard pants. And he finds something similar to mustard pants. They're not quite mustard pants. He drops 300 bucks on a pair of pants that aren't even quite mustard. And we leave the mall and he feels placated somewhat. Is that disturbing? I don't know. Am I kind of like that? Sure. Look around. I'm surrounded by 9,000 books in a, in a room full of clutter. Am I a hoarder? Is this just a museum to my inability to uh, experience emotions fully? Is this just a museum to uh, my need for control? To feel like I have an empire of some kind, an empire of half-read books? Am I just like that guy? God damn it. It's those moments where you, you just realize, like, holy shit, I want to spend time with my dad only so I can try to figure out what not to do from this point on. But the kid had a good time and, you know, everything worked out all right. Truly the high point for me, and this is between us, but one of the high points was I had to take a cab from my brother's house to the airport in Phoenix and he had called. Uh, he had called a, a cab, and I walk out, and uh, you know, a half hour later, there's a discount yellow cab. He thought he had called the yellow cab, and this car was like maybe a. I'd like to say it was a Nova or some ridiculous old shitty car that had the you know discount yellow cab on the side. There was a couple driving it, a man and a woman. They throw my stuff in the trunk. I get in. The air conditioner doesn't work. It smells like cigarettes, and these two are in the front. And uh, I start talking about comedy and the woman's like, yeah, I want to do comedy once I was in Los Angeles and I have this joke and she goes on this long joke about the Pillsbury Doughboy and the keyboard elves basically dealing drugs and that people need, you know, the, it, it was a very ornate, elaborate 
theory slash routine about the Pillsbury Doughboy basically being a crystal meth dealer. And then the guy tells me a couple of off-color jokes, uh, a bad gay joke and uh, some other joke. And uh, and then I notice that night there's like there, there's one good tooth between the two of them. Both of their all their teeth are rotting out. And then I realize I'm fucking being driven to the airport by tweakers. I mean, like tweaker taxi. And the, you know she's noodling on about you know these big theories about you know uh, about mech, you know politics and Pillsbury Doughboy and I'm like holy shit, I think that a better time to call that cab company would be in the middle of the night so they're peaking. But it, it, was a, it was a I wish I had the fucking mics on. I wish I could have just pulled it out. Literally, I they had their, all their teeth were rotten, and it took me a few minutes to realize like I don't even I didn't even want to give them my credit card. So I didn't, and and I thanked them, and I gave them, uh, you know, like 50 bucks. And I know where that went. Into more theories, I'm guessing. So look, on the show today, we have uh, Jonathan Ames. Now, Jonathan Ames is someone I've known of and worked with over the years, and I didn't know his writing until I, I, I got an opportunity to interview him. He, uh, he created the show Bored to Death, which is now on HBO, but he's also written a few books that, are, that he's very known for being very revealing about just about everything. He's definitely a too much information kind of guy, which I am as well, uh, in terms of using his own life and his own experiences uh, to, to, to entertain and to, uh, to provide you with literary content. I, you know, I don't know how else to say it. But it was interesting to talk to him because I had not really talked to him. And, I, and one thing I didn't talk to him about, which I really want to bring to your attention, because he gave me a copy of it. He gave me a copy of his books as well, is a graphic novel called The Alcoholic, which is really a masterpiece of graphic novelism, if, if it, graphic novelication, graphic novelizing. And it's about an alcoholic and it's somewhat autobiographical. And, and after I read it, I'm like, shit, I wish I could have talked to him about this, but I do recommend you purchase it. Quick reminder. Tomorrow night, UCB Theater, Los Angeles, California, live WTF with uh, the amazing and uh, infamous Charles Fleischer. I don't know if you remember him from back in the day, but one of the great, peculiar, absurd wizards of comedy. We also have Brendan Burns, who you heard here from Australia. We also have Aaron Foley, a very funny comedian who was in uh, Almost Famous with me. Andrew Daly, who is on uh, Eastbound and Down right now, uh, a very funny guy. And of course, Jim Earl. And those of you in Texas, I want to remind you that on October 18th in Austin, Texas, at the Parish, we're doing a live WTF with some Texan comedians, many of who you may know if you're from out there, Lucas Melendez, uh, Martha Kelly, uh, Eric Krug, uh, Bryson Turner, uh, Brian Gutman. Those names ring a bell. That will be the same crew as well in, in Dallas on Tuesday night at Trees. That's October 19th. Uh, we're adding Paul Varghese or Varghese. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I feel bad about that. But those are the Texas shows. And of course, Wednesday, October 20th, uh, we will be at Comics in New York. Big shows, great shows, 7.30 show. We've got Eugene Merman, Kristen Schaal, uh, Jesse Klein, uh, John Glazer, Sam Cedar, maybe John Benjamin, maybe Will Arnett will stop by. I'm not sure. 9.30 show. We have Mike D. Stefano, Rich Voss, Bonnie McFarlane, and Louis Black. Exciting. Please come to those. Um, I was at this huge HBO party, and uh, I have a cat on my lap now. His name is Minimus. I think I'll toss him off because he'll yeah. distract me the whole time. I like um, 
Are you allergic to cats? By no, no, no. I got, a, I got like three of them. Oh. Well, he's my landlord's cat, but he loves to come up here and hang out, which causes some... My landlords are very sweet, but he loves to be up here. And so I'm like his like naughty older brother that who's like <laughs> third floor attic, you know, <laughs> yeah, room yeah, yeah. he hangs out Does in. Does your landlord get upset or jealous or is he fine with it? Well... They're fine with it. They're like, oh, we knew, we know you were out of town because Minimus was hanging out with us again. Uh huh. See, he gets full reign on all my bad furniture to just rip shit. it up. Yeah, and, you know. Yeah, I always wonder why I chose to have these feral cats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find I resent uh, a people that like me too much or anything that likes me too much. So mm-hmm. I like the struggle. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, I imagine. Well, maybe. You know, I, I, in listening to just a little bit of your podcast, I mean, and just since you've been here, you yeah. love the word resentment and resent. So it's like <laughs> these cats must be like a mirror, you know, like tough. Don't come near me. I'll come near you when I want to. Yeah. So you might like you, yeah. you admire them. Well, I, I wish I wasn't like that. The weird thing about, about my relationship with you is that, and, and I'm talking to Jonathan Ames, by the way, uh, is that, um, you know, I've you've been on we've been on the peripheries of each other for probably twenty five years. I, I don't know that long, but twenty um, maybe. Well, let's see. T- Two thousand ten. I didn't start really performing in New York until, but that was on my own early nineties, and people right. didn't start dr- dragging me into stuff until late nineties. So, but I but I've known I I think at least twelve years. Right. So I'm into linear stuff, but right. So in performance wise, I think. We first started leading parallel lives, late 90s, maybe. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. What were the first performance things you were doing? My first performance things, I was doing my own shows at the Fez. Yeah. Uh, This started in 93. I was working the door there, and I started doing my own monologue shows at the Fez, and I would have like college friends read or do some weird little acts, and I did that for years. Um, up until the time the Fez closed in 2002, I believe. And it was always written stuff? Well, my monologues were never written. Right. Um, I would do uh, outlines of them. Right. You know, yeah, yeah, sure. That's the way I work. Like yeah. the way Spalding Gray, I think, might have done it. Or, yeah. Um, but did you know him? I, I did, yeah. And, and, I, and I acted in this play based on his life. Um, this posthumous play that his uh, wife put together and which went on to off-Broadway. I didn't make it to the off-Broadway part, right. but I was part of the initial group. Yeah. And so I got really intimate with his stuff and, and I met him a few times and he was very much a hero uh, to me. Yeah, I think uh, that in retrospect he is to me too and I, and I think you are as well and, and that's why you know somehow or another, like despite the fact that I've known who you are, I've chosen to uh, to get a sense of who you are by uh, by gossip and hearsay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like it's taken me. Like you were just listening to my Robin Williams interview, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sitting up uh, cramming on your books. Mm-hmm. I'm like I've known this guy kind of for like twenty years or whatever yeah, it's been. Yeah. But why? Yeah, but yes, yeah. And and what I you know, and the things I always heard, like my assumptions are, and, and now after reading the books, that. Because I do pretty honest stuff, but I don't have the balls that you do in living my life, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, so I'm reading your stuff, thinking like it's going to be this, uh, like you know, really hard edge kind of like you mm-hmm. know, I'm out there fucking everything in the world, mm-hmm. and and then it uh, the humility of it is fucking uh, is fucking awesome. Oh well, thank you. Um, I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know about having balls because I feel like most we well, talk of the about st- them. Well, yeah, <laughs> how tiny they are. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the whole thing is tiny. You know, I just did... Um, well, I think I'm average, and sometimes... I mean, girls have been nice about it, but I they, they might be, you know, lying. And that's always the advice I give well, to women say? in a relationship. Say? I tell women, if you want to hold on to a guy, just like... Every three weeks or so, just tell him he's got a beautiful cock. Like every three weeks. So beautiful just, is a word. Well, beautiful or not, whatever they yeah, want to yeah, say. You yeah. know, oh, God, you know, I just love your cock. Perfect. Just say it like every three yeah. weeks or so, not too often so the guy gets cocky. You yeah, know, but yeah. just enough to keep him coming back for more. And and I think that, you know, a woman will hold on to a man. Because a lot of women do have a hard time holding on to guys. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what it is. I have a hard time uh, holding on to women. Yeah. But I don't know. Uh, but like the Spalding Gray thing, because when I look back at, at who he was and, and, and what you do and what I try to do, that you know, his honesty was certainly different than, than the type of honesty you were after, isn't it? Well, you know, I was, um, uh, I was just in Scotland, Edinburgh, Scotland, at the film festival there. You didn't perform there, there, did you? I didn't perform, no. It's a little rough. Um, yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, I, I did do a Q&A that seemed to go over well, probably because I was enunciating. <laughs> no, but then I, and I probably sounded completely crude to them. But um, so the, I saw this Steven Soderbergh documentary about Spalding and there because it was at the festival. And I actually watched it in like a little video thing. And I, I, I cried the whole time because I knew him and I knew how it ended and I had been in his work but they showed some of his early stuff and there was some like some raw honesty in there that i had i had not seen like he talked about sucking some guy's cock and i did not know that spalding gray like <laughs> on stage and he was he started doing this bobbing motion with his head and i was like fucking spalding like <laughs> That's so great because, like, I don't know. He must have been in his early thirties. He was in Europe. Yeah. Like, somehow, like, he was traveling with this gay guy. He thought he should try it, and he went in there, and then he was just doing this thing. And suddenly, I'm sucking it. I'm going, I'm gay. I'm gay. And he's like, <laughs> I was just like, oh man, because the Spalding usually was just like, and so my eye was moving to the right, and I thought of my mother swimming in, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, Providence, yeah. Rhode Island, and how her eye would move to the right. Or I mean, right, that was exactly. very bad Spalding. No, no, no. That, that was close. Because we're in my kitchen, and but but you were saying so you you've known me for a long time, you, right? And my really, what was the gossip you. and hearsay though? I'm curious. That, well, no, it's it's not really gossip and hearsay. It's like you know from what I gleaned, you know, because I know Reverend Jen, you know, yeah. and I've known you know uh, uh, a few people that we know in common, yeah. and that like I started to feel bad that I missed these these points in your life and in mm -hmm. your performance. Uh, and, and also reading your stuff as much as I should because you know it's it's, it's great mm -hmm. and it, and it's got a lot of heart to it and and it's very honest. So it was really stuff like you know when I talked to Reverend Jen, she talked about the the mangina mm -hmm. uh, 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 period, mm -hmm. which I know nothing about. Yeah, that, and then, that what, was a good period in my performance career. What was that about? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a one of the later phases is that he would stump me on stage. He would this take was off. a guy that calls himself Mangina. Yes. And he wears a Mangina. He, he's kind of retired because he realized it was a flawed project, but he put about a decade of his life into it. What was the project exactly? Well, he would wear this prosthetic vagina. I think he, at, early on, he might have, he claimed he thought he might sell it to prison populations and cross-dressers. It, it was a wild, ongoing performance art piece insane i mean he was fingered by like a thousand people you know because he made this hole out of which he would pull the his scrotum and yeah. he would call this um it looked like it did look like labia yeah and he would make these craft these beautiful vaginas sometimes getting the molds of real women 
And he would mold their vagina if they shaved, and then he would wear their vagina, make a little hole, and pull out his scrotum so it looked like another level of labia. And people would finger that. And a lot of times, girls would finger him and think that it was all plastic and not realize they were fingering his balls. <laughs> he actually has a smaller cock than mine. So, like, if they even hit the root part of it, I don't think they even noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? But so he did this for years. He's also missing a foot. He's a great painter. In fact, his paintings, you can see. Those are two of his paintings. He's oh, really? a wonderful painter. Yeah, 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 nice. Um, but he's missing a foot, which led to his fascination with prosthesis. He's a true, great bohemian. And anyway, a few years ago, just two years or so ago, three years ago, we were both going through an out-of-control phase. And I couldn't... I don't really perform that much anymore. Once in a while, the monologues, and I can hardly yeah. read from my books anymore. But... I just needed to be more outrageous or I just had, I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't want to make people listen to me anymore, but I liked having uh, Mangina attack me yeah. on stage <laughs> and he, this, it all, and he would take off his um, prosthetic foot and stump me because his, his foot is missing, yeah. but his shin bone looks like. A huge phallus but a really scary one looks yeah. like a big bone and it's got this knob at the end they were able to hold on to his heel yeah you know when they sawed off his foot and he would stump me like i would bend over he would wrestle people like he wrestled this blind woman with the with the mangina he would be wearing the mangina nothing it, else really sometimes nothing else weird hats he might put on that yeah. he would build sometimes the foot would be off so one time we had this wrestling match against this blind woman who I think studies jujitsu and he snuck around from behind and tried to attack her from behind as I was going on the count of three. I'm like, and he snuck around and then he would lose though. He was a good sport that way. But yeah. this other time we did this little performance. This was like two years ago. I wrote about it in my most recent book. I sent an email to friends and this girl who, well, she, she puts on these shows that nobody comes to. So there was about seven people in the audience, right? Is that what he said? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and this, it wasn't Reverend Jen. No, it wasn't no, Reverend Jen. Yeah. I don't want to say the woman's name. She's okay. very sweet in case okay. she hears okay. this. But seven people come to this thing. She's dragged me into it. We're backstage. Patrick's yeah. smoking pot, taking pills, mangina. drinking wine, mangina. Yeah. And, um, and he's going to wrestle this other girl, right? And he's wearing this full see-through weird skin tone bodysuit he's got the mangina on he's got garish makeup a wild wig he's all hopped up on eight different chemicals you know <laughs> and i'm to be the ref of the match right mm -hmm. so the match starts in front of this audience of seven in this tiny little space is about two years ago and he goes berserk on the girl and he actually does almost kind of try to body slam her and she gets upset runs into the audience right yeah and he then sees me and he goes nuts, rips off his foot, begins chasing me, and begins to hit me with this thing that he wraps his foot in. It's called a stump sock. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. this thing smells. You yeah. know what I mean? At the time, he was living in Queens. He'd be on, like, the subway for an hour and a half. So his stump sock just reeked of, like, the thousand insides of, like, a high school basketball team's <laughs> pairs of sneakers. Yeah. I mean, he starts hitting me with this stump sock, and I used to start laughing. The smell is so bad that I became paralyzed by laughter and the stink. Yeah. I fell to the ground. He's very strong from having lost his foot. The rest of his body got right. great strength. He yeah, also yeah. worked on the railroad at one time, pounding ties. He's a very strong guy. He's had like, you know, 47 restaurant jobs, bartending. He's powerful. Yeah. Very skinny, though. Yeah. And, you know, smokes like two packs a day, though less now because he's pretty broke. So anyway, he manages to rip my pants down and he got and 
got his stump against my butt for real. Now, we had faked this once or twice at Bowery Poetry Club. Like, hey, man, Gina's going to stump me. But now on whatever pills he was on, he was rabid. He got that stump against my ass and began pounding. And I was laughing, but I was really getting violated. And the, the, the girl, the nice girl was hosting, who was, of course, hosting naked, jumps on Mangina. He swats her away. I can't fight. My pants are down. The stump is against my butt. The, the, the nude girl jumps on him again, momentarily distracts him. I crawl away. My underwear is ripped. My pants are ripped. And I stagger backstage. And then he like is so rabid. He comes backstage, then he comes back out to the audience and begins to finger himself maniacally. You know, like is he hopping he, or does he? He's he hopping. Able? He's able to hop on that one foot pretty well, or maybe he put his oh foot my back. God. It was. It was the. I said, and so I wrote in this email to a bunch of friends. I'm like, we had our greatest performance ever last night. You know, yeah. It, this was beyond punk rock, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. I was stumped by Mangina in a wig with garish makeup going completely nuts. And the next morning when I went to the bathroom, now he didn't actually penetrate, but he must have pounded against me. Yeah. It hurt. Yeah. It hurt. I was just, I can't, because <laughs> by the next morning I was, you know, I'd maybe forgotten about it. I'm going, why is it hurting me to go to the bathroom? I'm like, oh my God, he really pounded against it. You know, he went nuts. He He's, wanted in. He, he overwhelmed me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was that, and that was the last performance? We, yeah, I didn't let him, we haven't done a stumping since. Or maybe we did, but at Bowery Poetry, but I didn't trust him not to go completely nuts again because I think like he wanted to set again his book of world records of terrible art of having stumped his best friend or one of his best friends. So at that point, when you say you're out of control, you're just fucking, you know. I was out of control. I won't go beyond that. I was, I was you know misbehaving on stage and off stage uh-huh and now when 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 in terms of that mm. scene because i i think that you know i'm about the same age as you mm. do you feel that that whole lower east side you know art punk mm. uh, performance art thing i think by the time you got there wasn't it mm. sort of already hadn't it sort of passed well when i yeah i kind of was getting into it you know mid late 90s ps 122 and i think it was still thriving you know before Who was the working end. then? Um, well, Spalding Gray was still doing stuff. He would still In do stuff. In small spaces? He would MPS? still um, open shows at PS122. Uh-huh. I even saw Bogosian there. Right. You know, late 90s, yeah. PS122. Um, but yeah, it was... And Karen Finley would still do stuff. You know, it was like... They were like the last three... You know, Danny Hawk was doing his shows sure. there. But it, yeah, it was starting to wind down. And by now, it really... I, d- I don't know of the scene. Maybe there's young kids doing really cool stuff. I'm not aware of it. The Bowery Poetry Club remains the one last place of some good, deep Manhattan nuttiness. I think. Yeah. I don't know what's happening in Harlem or some of the n- new neighborhoods that maybe have a little bit of an art scene. I don't know. But Bowery Poetry Club is still pretty wild. Reverend Jen still has an open mic yeah. there. And, the, you know, the people still holding on to Manhattan, though a lot of them are in Brooklyn you know, will yeah. come out and right. just get up there. And I love those open mics. Do you think that's something... And there's about- another one called Skits and Tits on Monday nights. And what's that? What's that's that? also open mic. It's the same crowd. It's like, you know, it's just this right. Bowery Poetry Club open mic free for all. And I always, I think I was, uh, you know, because I was a comic that there was some uh, part of me that was that condescended to that, that there was, uh, to me, I couldn't really tell the difference between, you know, somebody who really wanted to be funny and couldn't quite figure out how mm-hmm. and was mm-hmm. just, you know, pushing these limits you know, poorly mm-hmm. uh, to, for effect, mm-hmm. and, but yet they, they weren't fundamentally talented. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, but I think that, that that was me being condescending because mm-hmm. I think the, the raw humanness of wanting 
you know, any kind of attention and pushing those limits is, is pretty exciting. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, like you go to a, a night of these open mics and I've done it the last few years. And then sometimes when I've been busy, I don't go for months. But, you know, you'll have like three hours, sometimes four hours. I'll go really late. People will sign up and, you know, people will be raw, boring, not great. But then there'll be this like gem like thing, some gutty, nutty guy who maybe is autistic, you know, who will just dance wildly and run up and down, you yeah. know, and it's just yeah. fun. And like, yeah. and the whole thing gets very lively and the whole cast of characters, you know, this guy who's, you know, he's sometimes called touching you or Mayor Brodeur, you yeah. know, this guy. No. Um, Bloomberg had him thrown in jail for basically being a pest. He, he harassed Giuliani and Bloomberg for years. He's he's completely mad, but he claims they've written 2000, you know, pop songs yeah. and and, and, you know, he, he's often getting thrown in jail for harassing people. And yeah, this yeah. one time he came out of Rikers after a week and he showed up at the open mic. And it was like the returning anti-hero. Because yeah, yeah, everybody yeah. hates him there. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? But I, I happen to love him. Yeah, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. You know, he just come out of Rikers. And Reverend Jen brought him on stage. And they used to be boyfriend and girlfriend, but she can't stand him. I mean, like a decade ago. Yeah. And so there's still kind of a raw, vital scene there. It's the last bit of it. Um and I don't, I just, I, I haven't been on stage there myself probably since a stumping like two years ago. And that, you talked about that in the newest book, which is Essays, and it's uh, The Double Life is Twice as Good. Yeah, which isn't a very good book. I, I got into this fetish a little bit of just, you know, wanting to put out books like every year, every two years. You know what I mean? Yeah, just because, because I, well, <laughs> it's working. I know, but I guess it was that thing I wanted to be the writer who had a lot of books. And so even if some of them were mediocre, there might be one good piece in there, you know, because I mean, I like that. I like writers that have a lot of books that I can just delve into them for a while. But I kind of lately have been regretting that book. The Double Life is twice as good. It's a good cover. Um, yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I just there's a lot of piece in there I'm embarrassed about now. And You're embarrassed about something? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't really remember what I've written. Like when you say, oh, you were so honest, but I was maybe honest a long time ago, but Maybe also I know that it's not honesty because I, I'll tell certain truths to not have to tell greater truths. Well, I think right. I, well, that's a, it's yeah. sort of, one of uh, something I want to talk to you about because mm -hmm. when I, in reading the first uh, collection of essays, what's not to love. Yeah. Yeah. That's a half decent. But do I mean, you, do you, yeah. would you consider that at that time when, when I mean, you, you're out of Princeton, you did mm -hmm. some graduate work and mm -hmm. you're working odd jobs, but you know, you want to be a writer, you mm -hmm. know that, I mean, yeah. that's what you want to do. Yeah. And you know how to write. Yeah. Now, your heroes at that time were who? Well, that book, What's Not to Love, is composed of columns that I wrote for the New York, New York Press. Pre yeah, right. So every two weeks, I would have to produce a column. And at that point, too, I had written two novels, but now I was doing all this nonfiction, which kind of, um, which I hadn't done before, but I had also, I had been performing nonfiction. I'd been doing the monologues since 92. So when I got this column, like in 97... I, I sort of took what I'd been doing on stage and started turning it into prose. So in a sense, an early hero was Spalding Gray, but prose-wise, uh, Bukowski had a column for the LA Free Press. Right. And so I very much based the terse style, the honesty, the creating a, a persona based on myself, based on Bukowski's columns that were collected in a book called Notes from a Dirty Old Man, which was the title of his column. Right. My column was called City Slicker. Though better, the What's Not to Love would have been a good title for the column, which became the title for the book. 
City Slicker was so so title. Do you ever get that thing though, where where because it seems that it, as as weird and dark as some of this stuff gets, and it's not it's not that dark the, the stuff I I, mm-hmm. I read because you sort of counter it with with humor mm-hmm. and, and your own realization mm-hmm. of who you are. I mean, when you write, is there is there a bleakness happening now? Um, well, not really, because I'm I'm all I'm really writing these days is the TV show. Yeah, I want to talk and, about that. And so. Um, Sometimes I'll let the characters, you know, like in this new season, Ted Dance Bored had, to death. Yeah, has a speech that about his mortality and that gets, you know, verges on bleak. But Ted does it so beautifully and it, it felt it was it was more human and sad. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I wrote a novel now, maybe it would be bleak, but I'm, I'm just not thinking in terms of of writing books books i mean i want to write a a thriller i mean i want to write just genre stuff now i i feel like i don't i don't i think i i can't expose myself again for a while you know what i mean like i don't remember exposing myself in the eight books i've published but i do i want to hide i don't want to put myself out there anymore i don't want to use myself as a as a narrator or a character anymore i mean in bored to death the character has my name but it's a very fictionalized comedic exuberant version it's pretty sweet um yeah so i I don't know i don't know that i could ever go completely dark my first novel uh is pretty dark that was i was kind of a it's called i pass like night and that was i wrote that when i was like 22 to 24 and i was very inspired by last exit to brooklyn by hubert selby and so that was kind of a, a dark novel, though I guess there were funny moments. And then my mom said to me, you're so funny. Not that I am, but, you know, she thought I was or something. So she said, so funny. Why don't you, you should write funny things. So then my second novel, The Extra Man, was a long comedic novel um, with some darkness, I guess. I, I want to ask you, as you know, in advice, mm-hmm. you know, what you have learned about this, uh, the male gender and putting yourself together. And putting what I've learned about the male and putting myself together. Well, because it seems to me that when I read the books and you know, your reflections on your cock, your reflections on your balls, the size of it, your reflections on your hair, yeah. your decisions to you, you know to 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 not medicate mm-hmm. uh, in a way mm-hmm. that you you wouldn't have control over it or feel mm-hmm. it, uh, your decisions to to take up boxing, to mm-hmm. to spend time with transvestites, to mm-hmm. that that there is some. There has to be some overview at this point, whether you want to be honest or not, mm-hmm. uh, about sexuality, about gender, and about mm-hmm. what it is mm-hmm. to be a man. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, that's a big question. Um, I mean, using myself as a case study, I don't think I could talk about men. <laughs> I could talk about me. Yeah. Um, but basically, I mean, and I, I, guess I was writing a blog for the TV show, and I've said this before, my, all of, most of my sexuality comes out of you know psychological trauma and things that may have gone on in childhood specifically what do you pin it to well your relationship with your mother n- no i mean both parents yeah both of whom i love yeah and so so i feel sexuality for me has been um it's an easy phrase acting out but acting out pain yeah and, and trying to recreate psychodynamics usually of humiliation Mm -hmm. um to get to a place of profound self-loathing but at sometimes though there is a great comfort 
in the humiliation because okay now i'm at that place that i want to be i can't get any and, lower i'm, I'm a ground I'm here, level yeah you know but there's also an aspect to it i was reading some book on people with sexual problems and i only read the introduction <laughs> I, I tend to only enjoy genre fiction so once i pick up non I, I peter out after the intros <laughs> he's but, learned enough well you get it i yeah i guess <laughs> you know but i feel bad that way but anyway the, this doctor wrote about people seeking an obliteration of self and he was into that's interesting. the idea of people with fetishes because he thought that they might be able to achieve ecstasy through the obliteration of self like a man who's so into just shoes that he will completely lose himself and i think in normal heterosexual coupling you can have perhaps obliteration of self let's say you're going down on a woman and you completely lose yourself in it and just the carnality and just how beautiful she is and how sexy and you're down there and I don't know, you lose yourself. You're like on another planet. And, but I think fetishes or perversions sometimes like maybe it's more, maybe you get there faster or, or maybe it's just going down on a woman is the same thing as licking a shoe. I don't know. No, no, I mean, I'm not saying it's the same <laughs> no, thing no, no, for the no, women I'm, in the I'm, audience, I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm talking about like, the obliteration of self. And I think that's what I've sought out was the obliteration of self. Like I just, I had to get away from myself. And these things are like Alice in Wonderland things. These, the things that might be outside the norm of human sexuality. Like transvestites? Um, well, I, I always referred to people that were old as transsexuals, but yeah. um, I, not necessarily that. I'm talking more in vague terms, I yeah, guess. No, I get, but just yeah. the seeking like just losing yourself because you know i mean i'm familiar with your work and we're very lucky guys you know right we're middle class clowns who yeah. have the luxury of trying to figure our brains out you know most <laughs> yeah, of the planet <laughs> doesn't get to do that you know what i mean this is a very elite position so i'm very lucky that i've like ended up in motels outside the lincoln tunnel <laughs> trying to obliterate myself oh poor me you know nice jewish boy he's never gone hungry so he's so troubled he's got to obliterate himself but that said this is probably an elite audience who has ipods that can listen to this and so they can identify i mean this is our struggle i mean neil young you know had a good line you know you know when you feel embarrassed about your problems they're your problems you know what i mean and so um, I think one of the things that I try to address in the TV show, I guess in my own world view is, but maybe this is a weakening of the male species as expressed through my intellect. You know, maybe men are getting weaker and weaker and all this estrogen in the water. And, but maybe a weakening of the male is a good thing since men are so destructive. I mean, they're good at building highways, but they're also good at blowing up highways. Right. So I guess what I've been moving towards in my two seconds on the planet would be greater parameters for masculinity or maleness. Now, yeah. I don't think I'll achieve it in my life. But like the Neil Young quote, at some mm. point, you are who you are. Right. Again, I get to this point where the example I have recently from a therapist, that the mm. only thing that blew my mind, mm -hmm. uh, you know, recently in terms of uh, an intellectual idea uh, in, in relation to my own self-loathing mm. and the obliteration thing, I think, mm. is something we share mm. in the sense that I think... It, that my parents had no real capacity 
for for nurturing in a proper way. So mm -hmm. there was no emotional boundaries. Mm -hmm. So in order for me to even define myself as an individual, there was a struggle against them. Mm -hmm. So the boundarylessness was obliterating. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I seek that, and then mm -hmm. when when someone starts to push through my boundaries, I react with hostility. Mm -hmm. That's how I fight obliteration. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately you obliterate yourself because you're sitting there alone and you're angry and then the self-loathing comes. Yeah. But the guy who said to me, he said, what you're in search of is primal union. Mm. Yeah, well, that, that sounds similar to that obliteration right. of self. And, and that's what I was talking about, like going down on a woman. You know, that's, that's going to be a primal union. And that's why I like armpits also. I like yeah. to get in there. Yeah. And, um, and actual, and I like intercourse also. Sometimes I, um, well, anyway, I, I feel like I tend to be more oral, but yeah. Anyway, um, it's all right. But but wait, the thing about going—can I just be uh, yeah. specific? The mm -hmm. thing that—is there something when about going down on a woman that you know the connection of that and knowing that they're losing themselves in you doing that is a complete turn on? Well, yes. I mean, I mean, I actually wrote a line that didn't make it into the show, which is like someone asked the Ted Danson character um, something like. You know, how many women have you been with? And he's been with like a lot of women. But he said, but you know, but the thing is, I, he goes, I've always, my saving grace is that I like to go down on women. Yeah. You know, it's, but then, and then, but then I forget how I wrote it, but he said, but then again, you know, it's even that is selfish. Right. Because I enjoy doing it and I enjoy pleasing them. And he's like, is there nothing decent in the world? Can't that at least be a selfless act? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Because, but it comes down to I, you yeah. know, we're the we're these prisoners in these bodies, and everything does sometimes come back to self, even the acts of charity, even acts of kindness, like going down on a woman. So, what about the boxing then? That seems to be uh, the opposite. Boxing. Um, well, what was your boxing name? Uh, the Herring Wonder. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that came about. This guy challenged me in '99, a performance artist, and long history, but. Um, and from the moment he challenged me, I thought, I'll call myself the Herring Wonder. Mm -hmm. I was living on in the East Village at the time. I had two years there. I got a rent-controlled apartment from a friend or something. And and uh, uh, Russ and Daughters, the Herring Shop, was like great. two blocks away. And I would, yeah. when I could afford it, I'd get Herring there, you know, once a month or something. And Which kind? Um, I just always liked it with cream sauce, uh -huh. you know. But I, I've since gotten all kinds but, like the Majus herring um is that the very uh salty it's it's a little weird it's almost sweet and spicy it's got no real sauce on it it's marinated mm -hmm. in almost a red vinegar yeah and that one maybe i don't go for as yeah. much but i've had sometimes just like you know just not even in cream sauce i get it at the russian baths i don't know the kinds of herring even though i'm called the herring wonder yeah. but i do like it though it's a good fish yeah. um <laughs> and so i i thought it would you know i just thought i'll be a reincarnated lower east side jewish boxer called the herring wonder you know of course comedic because i'm not a boxer you know what i mean so i didn't want to seem like i was tough so i gave myself kind of an untough name yeah but um so anyway but i boxed twice in my life because maybe this is part of your question about being a man and i also have fantasies of being heroic uh -huh. You know, and again, like I don't maybe have the guts to be a fireman. I'm not good with tools anyways. I wouldn't be able to unfurl the hose. You yeah, know? Yeah. I, would like, I would get wrapped around my head. And <laughs> you people can't would, be the herring wonder <laughs> as a fireman. Yeah, but I'm not bad at sports. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can't operate a hammer, but I've been good at tennis and other sports for whatever reason. Like yeah. that part of my brain functions. So 
I I wanted to box because I wanted to be heroic and and boxing, you know, the way it's captured in cinema and and on TV, you know. So I got into boxing for that reason, and then. You know, it's very painful. I mean, when you get hit in the head, I'm a little worried about it. See, worried about it. See, those words came out funny, you know, because I probably got concussions. Yeah. And that leads to dementia yeah. and all these NFL players. You really think you did? I mean, I mean, you boxed that much? Um, I definitely got, um, I probably got two or three concussions just training. You know, I mean, yeah. it doesn't take much, I realize now, to probably get a concussion. But definitely in my fight in 99, that was four hard rounds, three-minute rounds. And I fought with a broken nose because I had broken my nose a week before in training. Probably got a concussion then. It was such a, I mean, it was an obliterating shot in the middle of my face. Um, and and the guy pounded me pretty bad in that fight. It was like four rounds of beating. Now, I, I got him pretty good, but he outweighed me like 25 pounds. He did bleed, though. It was a wild night, though. Matthew Barney, the you know performance the artist, artist yeah. par excellence, yeah. uh, was one of the judges uh-huh. and... Uh, I was supposed to come into Havana Gila, you know, yeah. and I was carrying a jar of herring. But for some reason, the CD jammed. So it seemed like everything was against me. And it was in a synagogue, though. The Angel Orenson's a converted synagogue. And, uh, and then in the second fight, though, eight years later, um, I, luckily the guy didn't hit me in the head once. And he was a huge guy. I don't know. I just lucked out. Though in training, my head had gotten fucked up pretty bad because my jaw was out of line for like two months. And I was really paranoid that this big guy I fought in 2007 would because my jaw was like this is a little bit like a typewriter yeah and i had sparred with a number of guys and including some good um you know gleason's kind of gym fighters yeah and i kept getting hit in the jaw my jaw was out of line and so i went into the fight without a line i thought shit one more blow and maybe it's gonna break and i'm a trainer there and I was wearing this headgear, this kind of old headgear yeah. to protect my nose. So my nose wouldn't get broken again because yeah. my nose sticks out so much. So I had this headgear that had a bar down the middle. <laughs> but the thing was so old. It was about 25 years old. It was like a, a worn leather mask. So I think it was increasing the force of the blows against me. Yeah. And this trainer said, yeah, I think that thing's fucking up your jaw. You better get another kind of headgear. And I said, well, but then I'll probably get my nose broken again. He said, better to get your nose broken than your jaw broken. But... I was scared to change my headgear going into the fight. Like, you know, he told me this the day before the fight. I tried to get a fancy mouthpiece maybe to help my jaw. And it was right before an HBO meeting. The day of my fight, I think I had an HBO meeting in the afternoon. About the first project? About Bored to Death. About Bored to Death? Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, but I had a fight that night, but I thought I can't cancel the meeting because I have a boxing match. I don't want to seem totally unstable. But you didn't think about canceling the boxing match? No. I don't know. I don't know. I've been training for two months. So I went to like uh, that nice sporting goods store on Broadway near Union Square. Paragon? Yeah, Paragon to get a better mouth guard. Yeah. And they showed this diagram of why you need a mouth guard because... Actually, the tip of the jaw touches the brain, right? Yeah. And so you need to keep the jawline so that the, that's why guys get knocked out when they're hit here because you got brain right here. Yeah. Like the brain is a little bit shaped like Florida. Yeah. It comes down. And so like the tip of the brain is down by the jaw. And I read that right before my fight and I see this diagram yeah. and I didn't buy that fancy mouth guard and I end up fighting with this old leather thing. And the guy I fought, Craig Davidson, nice guy, big guy. He'd once been on steroids. He was huge. Somehow he never hit me in the head the whole fight. That was only three rounds, two-minute rounds. So it was only a six-minute fight, and I did beat him pretty well. But I, I felt bad when I 
like I hit him hard in the head and I saw his eyes blink and he wobbled and I said, sorry. Like, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like yeah. I wasn't really cut out to be a boxer, you know? <laughs> you okay, buddy? <laughs> yeah. And like when I would train, like the trainer kept, I would hit people and I'd say, sorry. The, the, the trainer kept saying, stop, stop saying you're sorry. So I recreated one of my boxing matches in Bored to Death. And uh, Jason Schwartzman, when he knocks out John Hodgman, says, I'm sorry. And the trainer says, don't say you're sorry. But So that was from real life. But so the whole boxing thing is is about a hero fantasy. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I used to play war and escape from prison. And I had this nice woods near my house. And I just always liked to play the hero in my childhood games. And I think the boxing was like an How did it feel adult get, version of that. How did it feel to get beat up, though? That sucked. The fight in 99, I was depressed for a long time because I, de- I probably had a concussion. I think my ribs, uh, my ribs, see? My ribs were bruised. Look at that. See, I want to say ribs were bruised and I said rubes. Yeah, see? what do you think? I'm I'm early Alzheimer's. No. Um, <laughs> my ribs were bruised. My neck was all screwed up. My jaw was screwed up then too. My nose got rebroken. It was this swollen, like it was like a uni face in the middle. Uh, my friend had sort of betrayed me who I fought because he wasn't supposed to go for my head so much because of the broken nose because no fighter would fight with a broken nose. It's, right. I guess it's dangerous. And, and maybe I would have ended up looking, you know, like Raymond Kelly, the police chief. I saw him the other night at a yeah. thing. He's got a good boxer's nose. But um, but he went for my head immediately. In fact, pinned my arm in the first round and hit me in the side of the head 12 times, like uncontested. <laughs> he was completely out of control. So at the first round, like there's videotape of me, like in the corner, I already looked depressed. <laughs> and my trainer named Harry Kite, who was uh, in this yeah. Oscar nominated film against uh, On the Ropes. And he was this really, he, he'd sparred with um, Ali. And I think he'd done time for manslaughter, but a beautiful guy from, um, uh, bed sty and he was like Jonathan get angry he's yeah. telling me get angry yeah. and I'm like what you know and <laughs> yeah. I've often said you know I go straight to depression because when I hear you talking about hostility and stuff I have it I'm sure because I'm troubled but I submerge it so much I never even I don't get to hostility I need to work on that I it might be too late though because you know I'm getting close to 50 and um, but I need to get more hostile I See, this is the thing I think about us that there's this idea that, like, you know, I, I, you know, there's part of me that thinks, like, you know, I'm going to have six pack abs someday still, that, you know, that I'm going to resolve these issues, that my anger will just dissipate as as I get older. And, and I, I talk about on stage now that you get to a point if you do go to therapy, if you have enough self-awareness, you're like, look, I, I'm probably not going to unfuck myself before mm. this thing is over. Yeah. So if we can temper this, and it seems to me that what you're well, saying... Well, it's like being like Obama. I often think with my own personality, I've got to manage myself like a country that's so screwed up. Right. And so you try to minimize the damage or something. You know? well, yeah. Or you yeah. go, it's yeah. like, go for the worst alternate yeah. i mean the best worst alternate you know, know what I mean? an emotional centrist like you know like yeah. there's going to be these warring factions that i can't really uh, accommodate but, but maybe you know if i stay somewhere in the middle yeah i, I, can, I can manage my life for the rest or of you'll it. make choices like okay this will cause pain and is screwed up but this is the best you can do considering that you're coming from a screwed up place right Right, and so, you try like, to minimize the damage you're going to do to yourself. Yeah, and others. Yeah. And what's cool, though, and, and partly, and I feel like when you're talking about spending all this time in your head, it makes our days feel very long because also we're, we're not nine to five people. No, I know. We don't, I know. We don't have to go somewhere <laughs> and like communicate with others. Yeah. We're just alone tormenting ourselves yeah. all day long. I know. And that's why like it feels like one's been 
on one hand, things are zipping by very quick. Yeah. On the other hand, it's like every year feels like a trauma because every day I've been this because I, I oh, don't have eternal. to go anywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I was broke for years, but and now I'm not broke, but the life is the same because I wasn't fit for a job. Yeah. But you know what I but, mean? But, that, but, but as it turns out, that is our job. Right. Our job is to <laughs> torment and then yeah. try to be clowns, to make people laugh, to feel a little less alone, to, you know, try to make something. You know, yeah. these are the things I cycle back around to. But again, it's a very privileged life. So let's talk about the, the show and, and how that, that came about. Because when I saw it, it's, it's a very unique show. Uh, it, it, it's sweet. And, mm -hmm. and 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 it's it's mm -hmm. it's a curious uh, and interesting structure for, mm -hmm. for what is essentially you know an episodic comedy. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I first saw it, I'm like, you know, well, Jonathan Ames said it. This is going to be filthy. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and but it but it's not because you you've created this world uh, that that has a, a lot of refinement in it mm -hmm. so, and, and a, an ability to get into grit, mm -hmm. uh, an ability mm -hmm. to get into some you know modern problems mm -hmm. and how people live their lives mm -hmm. with the comic book artists and and this mm -hmm. and Schwartzman who is. Mm -hmm. Is is a pretty uh, an innocent in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, he he's the innocent quester in yeah. my mind. And and uh, it seems to be finding an audience mm. now. Um, is this a way? Is this a way for you to honor this desire to do a genre piece and also mm. to to almost? Uh, it, it seems like it. It definitely seems like there's some resolve in it. It's a happy show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well. Um, well, it's a comedy, you right. know, and it, but and it's not a dark comedy, right? You know, I guess it's uh, in that sense, it's light. And and I think that's the kind of comedy ultimately that I like. You know, I mean, I'm a big P.G. Woodhouse fan. I like the, you know, the comedies from the 50s, you yeah. know, some like it hot. You know, right. these yeah, things sure. that feel like champagne. Right. You know, it's like yeah. champagne humor yeah. is the kind of humor that I guess I like to put out. And, and in terms of the filthy, I guess I felt I had done that enough. I didn't. No, I, no, didn't, I, I didn't. I, I didn't want to be filthy right. anymore. I don't right. feel the need, or it's filthy you, enough. You might you have know? grown up. Yeah, and I mean, like this book, the subtitle was "What's Not to Love: The Adventures of a Mildly Perverted Young Writer." Yeah, and I I, I, I kind of, sort of came to regret that in this sort of funny way. Not that any of this is meaningful, because who cares? And I'll be dead, and no one will remember. But for years, it was like perverted writer Jonathan Ames. Right. Perverted writer Jonathan Ames will right, be at the New York Public Library. Yeah. Because I put that word perverted. And at the time, you know, uh, Edgar's, uh, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius had come out. And yeah. I thought, well, this will be like a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. But in my mind, I'm like, the adventures of a mildly perverted young writer. I thought people would like that, you know, yeah. instead I just got labeled for years and it, it, you know, I'd be like, yes, perverted. Every interview began with perverted writer, you know, and then I mentioned a venereal award that I had like in 1987. And so recently, like last uh, fall, the New York Magazine does a profile on me for Bored to Death. Yeah. Jonathan Ames, who's written about his venereal warts. I was like, you that's the opening sentence to this <laughs> profile? I haven't had that wart. It went away. I, but I, it's upsetting to me because, you know, women can really get messed up by warts yeah. more than men. Right. You know, and But I had that wart a long time ago. It's not come back. I don't think I transmit it. You know, I tend to be very safe. But... So sometimes these things haunt you. And so with the show, I didn't want to be warty or <laughs> filthy and I didn't feel the need to be. Now, the second season, I did push some of the sexual stuff a little bit more, yeah. but not dirty, but just more in like people struggling with odd sexual issues, but nothing like what I had done in my essays. Um, Do you regret this? 
I, I don't regret it, no, because first of all, you know, people don't really pay attention too much to other people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nobody really reads my books. It was nice of you to cram a little the night before. Or they read it and they forget it. And I, I don't know, I, I feel, no, I don't regret it. I don't really regret, the present is so difficult. I can't regret the past too much, though recent past things I'm pretty sad about. But, um, but no, I don't regret the books. So, so the TV show's been rewarding? You like working with Ted and Zach? Oh, and those guys are amazing, Jason. Um, Jason, yeah. I, I, uh, you know, I know Zach, and he's a sweet guy. Yeah, they're, I mean, the funnest part about the show are those three guys. I yeah. mean, and like the show, they've become very good friends. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of laughter. And um, so... Laughter's well, great. I just started... It's one of the reasons I do this. Like, I love watching my peers. I love li listening to people here st tell stories. I like having conversations. I like being... I yeah, like laughing. You're, you're great at this, man. So, oh, thanks. Um, how do, do you make money off these podcasts? Is there a way to make money? Uh, things come in. You get advertising. I have people who donate... Um, you know, we're starting to sell some premium episodes. It's, mm. it's difficult, but yeah. it's, it's not quite mm. a living uh, yet. But, but I seem to be doing something like I, I'm an isolating kind of guy. And, but I, in my heart and when I was a kid, I always loved talking to people and hearing people's stories. And somewhere in the middle of my life, I got jaded and cynical mm. and, and, and distant and hostile. And it went away. And now mm. this thing is sort of, mm. it's, it's, mm. it, it's. Yeah, no, because you're really nice. Because like, I'm yeah. not, because you were bringing up that we've known each other. Yeah. And you, you were nice to me. I always felt like maybe you didn't like me sometimes or, yeah. but, you know, and I, I figured you were lost in your own role because it was often sure. in the context of performance yeah. and whether or not you felt you had done well, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, it yeah, wasn't anything crazy. necessary to and do with me. I was sort of a hostile guy uh, earlier, you know, before. But, but you're very good at this. And so you should, I imagine this, you know, you get a radio show, which could be cool or just a talk show or, yeah, we'll or you're just having fun with it. And that's the main I'm thing. I'm creating a, 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 I'm creating a library of something. Yeah. Now, the, the last time I met you, and, and now I, I know the story, but I, you know, I, I was very surprised because we ran into each other on the street in front of John's Pizza over there on 6th Avenue, and, uh, and you introduced me to your son. Uh-huh. When, when was... Oh, yeah. It was couple... just on the street, and I said hi, and he said, this is my son. I'm like, I had no idea he had a son. Then yeah. I read the book, and, and, right. and there was this moment where... This you... a couple of years ago, though, right? right? Did I, I just park a car or something? I, I don't know. I, I, don't know. Yeah. I can't remember yeah. time that well. Yeah. But, you know, you deal with something in, in your book that, in my mind, at that age, you know, you found out that you had a child from a, mm. a single sexual encounter. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, not, not very... It didn't take you very long to, to accept responsibility and mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. enjoy... Mm -hmm. the fact that you were a father mm -hmm. uh how is that relationship um it's it's good you know he's um he's gonna be 25 so and you were 22 when you found out i i was 23 when i found out and, and it was a one-time thing with an older woman yes very nice woman um but yeah one time and um and then i got a letter you know yeah i got a letter when he was almost a year and a half old and uh, i had just graduated from college just sold my first novel and which I had to double in size. And then yeah. I get this letter and kind of had a little bit version of my own breakdown and ended up in rehab and all that. But, um, but then I became his dad and it's been, you know, a very wild path. And there's regret there because I would have liked to have been not a part-time dad, yeah. you know what I mean? But yeah. I didn't have the circumstances, the way the cards were dealt yeah. to be a full-time dad to, you know, to give him everything that he needed emotionally. Um, but he's in school now and, 
you know, lately we've been emailing, you know, like he was slow to get onto email. He's not a very technological kid. He's a really good kid, a solid young man, very good to my parents. Um, and so, but it's interesting, like it, it's different phases. Like, you know, we used to, we went through a period where we're like, we were like brothers, you know, yeah, yeah. and we had this like shared language. And for years we played this game called sabotage, you know, where we would just sabotage each other all the time, you know, and he was much better at it than me. Like what? Yeah. Well, he would, you know, we, I would do most of my parenting at my parents' house. Yeah. So I would be like in my childhood, my sister's room and he'd be in my childhood room and I must've had to go into New York for a day and he taped everything I had to like the you know if i had like a book by the bed yeah. i went to lift it it was taped you know if i went to put on a slipper that was taped but he taped it so i couldn't see what was taped you know yeah, what yeah, i mean yeah, yeah. went to move the computer mouse that was taped yeah, you know yeah, what i mean yeah. and then things under the sheets and then things would fall on me so this we would do this stuff constantly <laughs> and you know and it was we we had this little coded language that we would use with each other and and that's kind of disappeared in a way mm -hmm. you know and I think we're both to feel sort of shy to bring it back up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the things we do is go to movies together. And whenever we go to movies, like if he goes to the bathroom, he'll come in and purposely knock my legs over yeah, or yeah, yeah. bang against me. Yeah. Or he'll sprawl on the seat so that I have to squish over, you know, he'll fart on me. You know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. there's still some of that, but we're almost more shy because like he's a man now. Mm -hmm. So... And it's weird to maybe do that stuff, which was just our playing, mm -hmm. you know. Has he come down to the set or anything? Or uh, He has both seasons and the pilot. Um, I think he's a little bored with it now, you know, because, you know, after the first one or two takes, it gets very redundant. Yeah. And, but he came this year, and I think he, he's proud of what I've been doing, you know, because I haven't felt like he, he's really very capable you know he can build things and i've i have felt insecure and inadequate as a as a role model mm -hmm. but i think and he's studying like leadership stuff in school and and i was i, I was touched he said well you know you're like a quiet leader you know because he he observed the dynamics on the set and i was really like whoa he he does think something you know well of me you mm -hmm. know because i often just feel so i'm always been waiting for him to reject me um but so it's it's a difficult love relationship you know what i mean it's not you know but anyway you're a sweet uh, man jonathan ames you know I, I i could have done better um but i you know what's one cool thing about the show is like you know i'm able to take care of him financially in a way that when i was younger i couldn't mm -hmm. and it was like good timing because like um, he's in college and like a lot of kids nowadays, it takes longer so I can pay for it now. Yeah. You know, like you can see, like I've still, I've I mean, this is a nice place, but yeah. you know, I mean, I'm You're still living, living the same way that I have for like 11 years. I've been in here and I haven't really known what to do with my money yet. Cause uh, you know, it's pretty new. Yeah. Like what, I guess I could get new shoes, you know, Wait, so I, mean, I had someone order me. Three, because I only I've come to like one. So I ordered three pairs. Now I never could have done that before. But but I I don't like to shop. So I got three pairs of shoes arrived. The same and, kind. Yeah, the same kind. I don't know. They're comfortable. Well, I I think you but, could probably move into your own place if you want. I know, but I would have to clean this place up. I'm I'm kind of trapped in a a, a disorganized cycle yeah. okay. um, of stupidity. But anyway, so that's been a, the be one of the best benefits of the show is like that I can it doesn't make up for 
the hand he was dealt not having a full-time father but at least i, I can sort of take care of him now and, and it seems like you can take care of yourself too and, uh, and it, it was it's great talking to you man oh likewise you're, you're it was really nice of you to come over and well i'm happy for your success man thank you That's Jonathan Ames, a very sweet guy, a very revealing guy, and uh, and his books are great. I, again, I can't recommend enough that uh, graphic novel, The Alcoholic, which I didn't talk about because I didn't do my research. Let's do a little business. Of course, as always, we've got some... Uh, wait for it. Pow! Oh, man. Yeah, that's a mess. JustCoffee.coop, available at WTFPod.com. And I do want to, please, you know, I want to try to get you guys to get on my mailing list. If you go to WTFPod.com, you know, get on the uh, mailing list. I'm, I'm, up, I'm doing that every week. I guess I'm just so fucking proud of myself that I'm being responsible about uh, keeping you guys aware of what's going on that I want you to be on the list. And if you can, make a donation. Become a subscriber. Uh, $10 a month will get you a T-shirt and some stickers and uh, a signed thingy. And if you do the $250 uh, one-time premium donation, two T-shirts, my three CDs, a special WTF Best Of CD, access to all our premium content, some stickers, and you can be my friend forever. But please, uh, you know, open your hearts, open your wallets, help us out. We do run on donations, and we're happy you're enjoying the show. I feel like I'm plugging a lot. I got to stop. I got to go. Okay.